As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investments. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. On Washington, on the drama over the federal debt, on whether the Fed can take a break from raising rates, and on the two men who are running for president again. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, Blair Efron of Centerview Partners on the appetite for big deals despite all the uncertainty. We are in uncharted, complicated waters. Former Fed Vice Chair Randall Quarles on what went wrong with Silicon Valley Bank. And former BBC and New York Times head Mark Thompson on what streaming and AI mean for the business of news. The news is going through a revolution. That's what's going on. This week, Global Wall Street spent a lot of its time trying to look around corners, like the corner of the debt ceiling and whether it will keep the government from paying the debts it has already run up, with Speaker McCarthy traveling to the White House for what may or may not be negotiations. I was very clear with the president. We have now just two weeks to go. And the issue followed Treasury Secretary Yellen to the G7 finance minister's meeting in Niigata, Japan, at the end of the week. If Congress fails to do that, it really impairs our credit rating. We have to default on some obligation, whether it's treasuries or payments to Social Security. The presidential election may still be 18 months away, but the two leading candidates each had his own take on the debt ceiling issue, with President Biden saying it wasn't just the United States that is in the crosshairs. If we default on our debt, the whole world is in trouble. This is a manufactured crisis. But on the other hand, former President Trump appeared on CNN and said maybe a default isn't that big a deal. I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default. And in the meantime, consumer price index numbers came in this week as predicted. The month-over-month change for both the headline and the core comes in exactly as forecast at four-tenths of a percent. Now, that's up on a headline basis over what we saw last month. Which led Vince Reinhardt to doubt that they would do anything to change the Fed's path. Was today's print disqualifying for Fed action in June? I think the answer is no. 
the markets this week were relatively calm, with the S&P 500 off just three-tenths of a percent, the Nasdaq up four-tenths of a percent, and the yield in the 10-year up less than two basis points, ending the week, ending the week at 3.4606. To take us through what we saw this week, we welcome now Liz Ann Saunders back to Wall Street Week. She's Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab, and Kristen Britterly. She is Head of North America Investments at Citigroup Global Markets. So welcome to both of you. Great to have you. Kristen, thank you for coming to Wall Street Week. Really good to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Let's start with you in the equity markets. Uh, they seem to be relatively calm despite that talk about maybe some kerfuffle down in uh, Washington. Yeah, this is really interesting, and I think it's one of the most frequently asked questions that we're getting from our investors. Why is volatility muted? Why are we not seeing any stresses within the equity markets? And I think there's a couple of explanations for this. So the first one is when you look at the breadth of the equity market rally that we've seen, it's really only seven stocks are driving 80% of the year-to-date gains. So this is very concentrated. This is very idiosyncratic. Another way to look at it is you have about 10 companies that are driving 25% of the free cash flow generation within the U.S. market. So this is a story about the companies that are really well run as opposed to a breadth and depth of this rally. So, Lizanne, what about that? Does that narrowness of the rally, if we can call it that, in the stock market, does that make you nervous? Um, well, it, it doesn't suggest as healthy a market as if you had, you know, the soldiers at the front line and not just the generals at the front line. I think there's a little bit of muscle memory in a knee-jerk move that goes back into names like this when people think back to those, that group of stocks, many of the same ones, represented almost a defensive place to go during the worst part of the pandemic. But, of course, what it represented fundamentally at that time was those represented the the only ecosystems in which we were living when everything was shut down. I think this time it's a bit different. Chris talked about the the large size and liquidity and cash generation of these companies. You can also see the dominance of their outperformance really kick into high gear when we saw the uh, failure of SVB Bank and the ripple effects. So I think that really was the, the push there. You can have an environment like that last a while, and it doesn't necessarily have to be calamitous. There are times where you can see some catch down by the big dominant names while you're seeing improving breadth and better participation on the way back up. That's a bit of what was going on last fall when the market had its low. But I think concentration risk in terms of what is the manifestation actually for investors, I think we have, investors should be mindful of not chasing that and ending up with too much concentration risk. So, Chris, the equity markets can't get too far away from earnings. Uh, and we're well into earnings now towards the end of this season. And we looked at our elves, you know, that we have 24 elves, of which we have one from City actually. And they're projecting overall, I think, $206 at the end of the year in earnings per share, which is down about 8% from last year. Where are you on that projection? We're very much aligned to that, that we started this year um, about looking at about a 10% earnings contraction. We're now in the ballpark of about 8 to 10%. And I think when we look at Q1 earnings, they were certainly better than feared, which is why we could see some reduction of that number. But I think what we have to keep in mind is when we look at the U.S. equity market, we have seven out of 
of 11 sectors that are already in a profits recession. When we look at what the Fed has done already, the 500 basis points of rate hikes, the quantitative tightening, the stresses in the banking sector that are all, are going to lead to tightening of credit conditions, this is something that has us very cautious. It's more difficult for companies to be profitable in this environment. It's more challenging on the consumer. And the idea that this isn't going to flow through to corporate earnings in a more material way is something that we just don't believe. So playing a little defense here and expecting some downside is what we're advising our, our investors. We're either in or rapidly approaching a federal debt crisis as the so-called X date when the government runs out of money is just over two weeks away now. With a default, something most everyone agrees would be a catastrophe. And there are some indications in the T-bill and the CDS markets that at least some investors are starting to get worried. But you couldn't really tell that from the equity markets. This is not the first time we have been here, and we asked our colleague Michael McKee to compare what we're seeing now with what we saw in 2011, when we had a similar close brush with disaster. Investors, David, would rather hope that history doesn't repeat or rhyme. For some time, we've been told that nothing's going to happen on the debt ceiling until we get to the last minute or until Wall Street melts down. And it does seem we're getting close on both counts. Here's what J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon told us just a few days ago. Actual default. That is potentially catastrophic. And you can go through a million ways and but everyone, anyone who knows that's potentially catastrophic. And I don't think it's going to happen because it gets catastrophic. And the closer you get to it, you will have panic. Markets get volatile. Maybe the stock market will go down. The Treasury markets will have their own problems. It's amazing you already have certain T-bills trading 3% and right next to them 5%. This is not good. We have seen this movie before, the debt ceiling taken hostage for spending cuts a number of times over the past couple of decades. 2011 is one time when investors don't want history to rhyme. They went down to the wire as President Obama fought the idea of giving in to extortion on the debt ceiling. Then markets collapsed. The S&P 500 went down about 20 percent and stayed down for quite some time before starting to go back up again. Lizanne Saunders and Charles Schwab and Kristen Bitterly of Citi are still with us. So, Lizanne, let me go to you on this. Why aren't we seeing more reaction in the equity markets than we have so far to the debt ceiling? Um, I, I hope it's not just complacency and a correct assumption that although the can will probably inevitably kick to the 11th hour, 59 minute, that's just the way things are done, uh, particularly on this subject. But so my guess is just complacency and an assumption that something will get done. I'd hate to think we have to go down the same path of 2011, which is also akin in, for different reasons of, of what happened in 2008 with ultimately the passage of TARP. You needed that riot moment in markets. I think it, I agree with Jamie Dimon. I think it would be cataclysmic. I don't think anybody should be cavalier about letting it happen, whether it's for, um, you know, political gain or whatever reason. My concern with regard to 2011 Macro conditions are very different. We were on an upswing in the economy, having come out of the global financial crisis. We weren't dealing with an inflation problem or having come out of the most aggressive tightening cycle in 40 years. Um, and then there's certainly more vitriol right now. So I, I think 
we all should be worried about it, but I think ultimately something will get done. Okay, thank you so very much, Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab for being back with us, and Kristen Bitterly for coming to us from City. Partisan fights over the debt ceiling are nothing new for Wall Street. Louis Ruckheiser talked about it in March of 1996 when Congress ended up with a short-term stopgap spending bill to keep the U.S. from defaulting. Back then, if you remember, the top movie in the country was Mike Nichols' The Birdcage. Coming up, where have all those deals gone, and are they coming back? We're going to ask Blair Efron of Centerview Partners about whether it has to do with credit tightening or whether there are bigger factors, such as, for example, what's going on in Washington on the debt ceiling. All of that is coming up next on Wall Street Week, and we are on Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Credit. It's what makes the financial world go round. And that world is concerned there may be less credit available. One of the big questions will be, to what extent does credit tighten? Um, and, you know, if that is material, that will have a, a drag on the economy. With CEOs' mentions of credit tightening spiking this earnings season. The series of regional bank shocks made matters only worse, as bankers struggling to stay afloat had little appetite to take on the risk of extended credit. A banking system which has government guarantees where people put their money in, in a trust relationship, if they suffer significant losses, that's what causes concern. But as important as credit is, it's just that hard sometimes to get a handle on it in real time. The Fed's backward-looking numbers on bank, commercial, and industrial loans fell sharply in January and February, but started to recover in March, only to turn down again in April. And the forward-looking Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, or SLUS numbers this week, pointed to further tightening, which Fed Chair Jay Powell got a peek at last week and told us in advance was in line with what they expected. Mid-sized banks have, some of them have been tightening their lending standards. Um, banking data will show that lending has continued to grow, but the pace has been slowing really since the second half of last year. 
And to take us through the world of credit and what it may or may not be doing to the deal pace, we turn now to somebody who really knows that space awfully well. He's Blair Efron. He is a partner and co-founder of Centerview Partners. So welcome back to Wall Street. Thanks Great for having to have me, David. You. Good to see you. Okay, let's start with credit because it was one thing that does affect the pace of deals. Is it affecting it from your point of view right now? Absolutely. It's getting better, still constrained. Fourth quarter of 22, you had nothing. Today, you actually have the markets uh, loosening up for the right deals. The interesting data point, for example, the largest LBO in the past uh, six, seven, eight months was a deal with Blackstone and Emerson uh, for their climate business. $14 billion deal, no bank debt was available. Uh, the private uh, direct lending market stepped in, firms like Apollo, Blackstone, KKR, Aries. Uh, they did five and a half billion of financing to see it through. Half of that has been replaced in the past week by the banks. So it really depends on the credit, and um, it depends on uh, what the deal is. But there is absolutely credit available. Obviously, the key is it's much more expensive. You should assume for uh, a private equity transaction, it's 500 basis points or so higher than it would have been a year and a half ago. And for a corporate deal, 200, 250 basis points. And that leads to the next issue, which is how you price an asset for sale, and obviously with multiples staying high and elevated, and at 18 times PE, it's the same as it was last year, same as it was in 21, but yet your returns in any transaction are more difficult, so you have to think about uh, how to get the uh, buyer and the seller to come to agreement. Not, not easy. As I recall, Centerview might have had something to do with the Emerson deal. Is that we did. I, I, you, you can give us a plug, I won't. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. Uh, so, so let's go to that question of buyers and sellers and where they think the price is. Because some of those prices are coming down, valuations are affected by interest rates, and also some slowing of the economy in some places. Uh, have the sellers gotten their heads around the fact that their price may be lower? They're finally starting to do that, which is actually why I think there's more discussion. You don't see it yet in terms of announcements, but you see companies thinking more about uh, M&A as part of uh, their thinking in 23. And I would venture to say that as we exit the year 23 and get into 24, you'll see activity actually start to pick up quite a bit. So you think it will come back? Do you think it will reach the levels we had before? Because we had some record levels there. Oh, boy, that was high. You, know, <laughs> you think about a $5 trillion peak market, um, that probably uh, unlikely. But the idea that you'll have a a stable global M&A market of $4 trillion or so a year, I think absolutely. And what you find out generally about M&A, David, now is it's less prone to cyclicality. It's part of a company's core strategy. Most companies are actually very good at it. And um, when you're thinking about new avenues of growth, new areas for your business, if you're thinking about the pace of disruption uh, and how you combat that, it becomes uh, important for most companies to want to want to consider. When you've been on with us before, you've emphasized, Blair, that uncertainty is one of the biggest factors in determining whether companies want to do deals or not. Uh, where are we with uncertainty? Because there seems to be a lot of uncertainty around right now. We are in uncharted, complicated waters, starting with, obviously, the debt ceiling, which we're going to come back to, um, the banking environment more generally, and whether you think we're in a slowdown or um, something more severe in the coming months. I happen to be in a slowdown camp. I think there's a lot of resiliency that we don't account for, uh, a lot of tailwind that will uh, lead to stability. But that uncertainty clearly is an issue when you think about doing a transaction. And remember, you want to be able to think about a transaction when there's a macro tailwind because it covers up uh, some of your assumptions that may not pan out. It's just people do better in a growth environment. Any company does. So um, clearly an issue, and I think until the debt ceiling situation uh, resolves, 
um, and that's a, with a question mark, I hope. Um, it'll be uh, weighing pretty heavily. We've had this debt ceiling situation before. 2011 was the time we had a downgrade, actually, from it. And we have a lot of people, the President of the United States, as well as Mitch McConnell, agreeing we can't have a default. We actually had former President Trump saying this week, well, maybe it wouldn't be that bad a thing. Well, how does it figure in the minds of people doing deals, CEOs and others, thinking about deals? Are they taking that into account? Do they take it seriously? So everybody's taking it seriously. Let's get away from the deal market for a second. Let's talk about a company's performance. Uh, I think the debt situation, the debt sense situation, already is having a big impact. If you think about um, driving a car, you're a passenger, and the driver goes 90 miles an hour and then slows down, you're going to think twice about getting back in the car. What you have already, simply the specter of it, is probably hit GDP growth 30 basis points. It's probably hit uh, jobs, uh, 250,000, according to CEA, the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, and then you start to think about what the impact is if you go over and have a default that is uh, measured in days and weeks. The fact of the matter is, that's a half a million jobs. That's a half a point of GDP growth. And that's before you start to think of the uh, absolutely urgent consequences of something that's protracted. We also have regulatory uncertainty, particularly in the antitrust area, both from the FTC and from the Justice Department. Uh, Bloomberg actually had a piece this week uh, saying that that really is deterring uh, or uh, some of the CEOs from moving forward because you're not sure whether it'll get approved, but even more than that, how long it will take. There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding it. Are you dealing with that as you advise me? Uh, absolutely, David. And if you just... It shows up in the numbers. Year to date, we have, I think, 14 deals over $10 million versus last year was 24 deals. But you account for that in your thinking. If it's going to take 18 months for a transaction to close, you spend a lot of time thinking about how both the acquired business and the acquiring company manage their own businesses, keep the base business um, performing well, and uh, try to minimize uncertainty for, for all the employees. You can think about different structures. If you use stock, for example, in a transaction, uh, the, uh, the selling company has more of a uh, uh, vested interest, if you, if you will, more of a uh, uh, meeting of the minds in terms of what it takes to, to do well. Um, and I'd also say you, you think about the whole question of synergy in a different way. I think that you need to be more conservative, certainly on cost, and you need to be more um, aggressive and absolutely committed to the idea that a transaction leads to better growth, which leads to job creation, which leads to potentially better uh, outcomes for consumers. All this factors into um, the thinking. Um, I would also finally say that it's much more the administration using a megaphone than actually litigating that uh, uh, people are attentive to. But all that said, um, smart deals are still happening, and they will continue to happen. Blair, it's great to have you back on Wall Street Week. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me, David. That's Blair Efron of Centerview Partners. Coming up, generative AI, just the latest challenge to the news business model. We talk with the man who led the BBC and then the New York Times, Mark Thompson, about whether there is a way to make a serious business out of serious news. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI and what it will do to all of our lives. For those engaged in the business of gathering and reporting news, it's just the latest in a series of innovations that have also posed challenges. Things like streaming video and social media and even the Internet itself. Mark Thompson is someone who has spent his career addressing these changes and figuring out how to make them tools instead of threats. He was director general of the BBC and then president and CEO of the New York Times. He is now chairman of Ancestry. That is the largest for-profit genealogy company in the world. And we welcome him now back to Bloomberg. Mark, great to have you here. Good to see you, David. So this week, uh, we're struck by the fact at the same time we have BuzzFeed going out of business, we have your old shop, New York Times, signing a really big deal with Google for cash. What is going on? Well, news is going through a revolution. That's what's going on. <laughs> and the revolution's full of surprises. Um, when I got to the New York Times in 2012, so just over 10 years ago, everyone told me that BuzzFeed was going to become the New York Times or the Huffington Post was going to become the New York Times. A decade on, the game's really changed. Um, it's changed both um, in that the legacy players, some of the legacy players at least, the Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post might be examples of that, kind of got their act together and began to think hard about digital. And I think in the early 2020s looked pretty secure. Whereas the, the insurgents, the new guys, um, who had no legacy hang-ups, they had no print or broadcast TV to worry about, they've kind of got into trouble. It's turned out to be much, much harder than they thought to build a brand, to keep your audience, and above all, to figure out ways of turning big audiences, billions of clicks, into dollars. That's proven very hard for them. What does that say about incumbency when it comes to... I'm, I'm talking about real news now. There are things that call themselves news sites, but we're talking about real reporting. What does it say? Because, in fact, there are all of those things that you've mentioned and more that really sprang up. We thought they were going to be the bright new thing, and they've gone now, and yet we do have New York Times, by the way, I'll say Financial Times and Wall Street Journal, who seem to be doing quite well, thank you. That's right. Well, I think there's a few things to say. I mean, what, one question is, when was the last time... Uh, um, in the free world, we saw the creation of a global news brand, a truly global news brand, not a specialist 
business-led news brand. The Bloomberg is a really good example of that, but a kind of global, general news brand. It's CNN in the early 80s. So it's really, really hard to do. And in a great continental country like the United States, even to become a national news brand. Um, so legacy in terms of brand and trust and name recognition is fantastically valuable. But it's not enough. It's like, you know, it's, it's necessary but not sufficient, it seems, because you also have to work out the economics of a very different media environment. And what's interesting is I would say that the big TV brands in this country, TV news brands, to include CNN, have yet to figure that out. And their, their business, their legacy business, still very profitable, is dying. It, it's, it's dying, and it's not yet clear that they've got credible plans yet for the, for the new ship that's going to take over when the old ship sinks. So, so uh, talking about video news for a moment, yeah. which I know more about, we had, obviously, uh, the broadcast networks. And yeah. they were licensed by the government. There was this motor on your business because you needed a license. That yeah. gave rise to cable, and people were terribly afraid of cable. That gave rise to CNN, actually. And then we went right. on beyond that. Now we have streaming video. Yeah. Uh, so there's more out of, of it available out there. What does streaming video potentially mean for news? Is that a risk, an opportunity, both? Well, I, I think if we just talk as, as kind of as news people, some stories are best consumed as video. And actually, even newspapers like the New York Times have realised that, and you'll see a lot of video on the New York Times. Obviously, short-form video, which is kind of specially designed for smartphones and is very snackable, has taken over the world. I think for the, for the, big, the big players, if you're CNN, for example, if you're Bloomberg, the question of whether you want to offer users snackable little pieces... 45 seconds a minute, a minute and a half, or whether you want to try and somehow port the longer the show, 10 or 15 minutes, the anchor, uh, the, the conversation, whether that has a streaming role is unproven. And now, on top of all that, we have generative AI. Yeah. And what that means, you saw Barry Diller's remarks recently saying he thinks it could really pose a substantial threat to news. What do you make of general AI, or is it just too early to know? It, I think, I mean, I think it's too early to know. It, it is extraordinary, though. Um, I was at a board meeting for Anchester yesterday, and one of our engineers uh, um, uh, uh, had used GPT-4 to hack um, the beginnings of a, of, of a version of the Anchester product where you can ask mm -hmm. it questions, you can say, tell the story of my grandfather, and it will create either a thousand words of prose, or it'll create a slideshow with, actually, frankly, astonishingly convincing captions, like that in, in seconds, two or three seconds. So I think if it's an immense opportunity to solve some problems for us, you know, at Ancestry, trying to, to bring these family trees to life into human stories with pictures and sounds, and, and where a machine is doing it, you know, in a, very, a fairly safe environment, you know, it's all fairly, fairly formulaic. That's very exciting. Clearly there are threats, though, and I, I would say one real hope for us is that AI, both generative and other forms of AI, machine learning uh, 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 and other forms of AI, will really help us solve that problem if I'm a consumer of, how do I find the media I want? Mm. It's Friday evening, 
I, I, want, I want something entertaining, you know, I want it PG-13, I don't want too much violence. What have you got? What have you got? And actually, even the very best streamers in the world don't do a good job of telling me, in my view, and I need to ring friends and go through reviews and register to work out. I think that business of whether it's finding a news story on a smartphone or what you want to watch in the evening, AI can really help us with that. But a threat, uh, imagine an algorithm which could, every morning at seven, ingest all of the news in the world and then turn it into, we could use your voice, David Weston, and you, the consumer, could ask your smartphone in the kitchen to ask David what's happened today. <laughs> and David's not quoting the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or MSNBC. David is ingesting it all, paraphrasing it all, and is ready to interact with you. <laughs> what's happening in Ukraine? What, what are they? Did the Russians retreat at Bakhmut? Is that what happened? Why? What does that mean? And David can answer all those questions. And like every, they'll pay you a good, they'll pay you a good fee. For well, that. I was worried about that. <laughs> but unlike every powerful tool, it can be used for good or for ill, and will be used for both. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think when people talk about slowing it down, we must, you know, we must have a debate about how does that work. I mean, there are national security implications here. About, I mean, this is a technology which is, I think, almost certainly going to and probably has to be developed and explored. Um, it will happen, it's happening now very quickly. Um, I, I want to say, as a species, we're very adaptable too. Mm. Um, people who predicted the end of all jobs and the end of everything with previous, you know, the Industrial Revolution and everything since, have always been proven wrong because human beings adapt and generally, economic history suggests you get more jobs, you get more wealth as a result of these things. So. You know, although I can certainly think of very dark nightmares from AI, like everyone else, I want to remain basically optimistic about AI and news, AI and media more generally. So I'll buy that. Optimism is always good. Thank you so much to Mark Thompson of Ancestry. So this was the week when the entire economic world seemed to be coming down with a severe case of mad cow disease. In Washington, there was, you might say, utter confusion. Congress and the White House, whose most conspicuous accomplishment this year has been blaming each other for lack of progress, failed once again to reach agreement on a budget for fiscal 1996, a year that's already half over. So they approved, would you believe it, one more so-called stopgap spending bill to keep the government going for another 26 days. And that's no bull. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The failure of Silicon Valley banks sent shockwaves through the banking system and rattled the markets. The dust is really still settling, but the forensics on what went wrong are well underway, with the Fed Vice Chair for Bank Supervision, Michael Barr, issuing a report calling for stronger supervision and stronger regulation. For his perspective on what went wrong at SVB, we welcome now Mr. Barr's predecessor as Fed Vice Chair. He is Randall Quarles, now Executive Chair of the Sinisher Group. So welcome. It's great to have you, Mr. Quarles. So uh, there's been 
been a lot of back and forth about what happened and what didn't happen. I must say, Mr. Barr and his thing said this was a textbook example of bank mismanagement out of Silicon Valley Bank. I think everyone agrees with that. Everyone agrees with that. But are there things that actually the regulators or the supervisors could have done to make it better? It, it obviously was a textbook case of, of mismanagement. Uh, but I think that uh, explanations are usually most uh, penetrating when they don't assume that the people involved were either uh, fools or crooks. <laughs> uh, and so the question is, how could uh, some of these decisions have been made, both by the bank management, uh, by the Fed itself in supervising the bank? Uh, and there, I think, you have to look at the behavior of the uninsured deposits in Silicon Valley Bank and in the other banks that have failed over the course of the last two months, Signature Bank, First Republic. Uh, and, and the uninsured deposits at these institutions moved away from the bank with uh, speed and at a volume that we had never seen before. I mean, the, the, the largest amounts that had uh, ever run from a bank in the previously largest bank failures in the country's history uh, had been, I think, $18 billion over the course of almost a month. Uh, and in Silicon Valley Bank's case, $42 billion left the bank in a day. And the bank was getting ready to open the next day with the expectation that another $100 billion would have left the bank. You'd have $142 billion leaving the bank in the course of 24 hours. Finally, one more thought. Sold to the highest bidder. The sound of the gavel coming down, the thrill of victory over all those who couldn't or wouldn't bid up the price one last time. There's just about nothing quite as dramatic as competition measured in money. And that's why auctions are, are so exciting. No matter what's being sold, be it fine art. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to present lot 231. Or Premier League football clubs like Manchester United. And Manchester United soars amid reports that the Qataris are bidding for the world-famous football club. Or failing banks like First Republic. We had a good look before we bought it. And now the Inflation Reduction Act has introduced a whole new level of auctions with not just billions, but hundreds of billions of dollars in federal money at stake for those investing in green energy or in semiconductors. The whole point of this is to increase innovation, research and development in the industry. Not, you know, we're not giving you taxpayer money to fluff your pillow and increase your profit and give it away to your shareholders. And the bidders in these auctions aren't wealthy individuals or large corporations, they're states and even countries, offering concessions to get companies to invest in manufacturing with them rather than with their rivals. As Canada stepped up to historic incentives to get Volkswagen to build its battery plant in Ottawa rather than across the border. Yes, the IRA is something that we've had to step up to to make sure we're competitive, but uh, we're going to be a lot more strategic about how we you know, pick and choose the right investments we can't just do it blanket like the U.S. can. Not to be outdone, this week over 50 states and territories on this side of the border gathered together in Washington at the Select USA event. That's all to bid against one another for the foreign investors who are trying to get their share of the $369 billion in green subsidies and the $76 billion in grants and tax credits for semiconductor manufacturing. But maybe, just maybe, this is not the end of it but instead only the preliminary round in what could become the biggest bidding war in history, the United States against China for the grand prize of global technological leadership. And we seek competition, not conflict, but I will make no apologies 
that we're investing in to make America stronger. Investing in American innovation and industries will define the future that China intends to be dominating. Whatever happened to all that criticism of China putting its heavy thumb on the economic scales? Well, maybe you can't beat them, you just join them. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. If you missed any part of today's program, you can listen on demand with our Wall Street Week podcast. Find that on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm David Weston. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.